Hi everyone, I'm Ashley Minogue from OpenView's expansion team, where I help software startups accelerate their revenue growth to build long-lasting companies. This season on Build, we're talking about product-led growth. Each week, I'll speak with tech executives and founders to hear firsthand how they've leveraged a product-led growth model to put product at the center of their acquisition, conversion, and expansion strategies. Now on with the show. Not many businesses have gone from being valued at zero to seven billion in five years. Today's episode is all about uncovering insider tips behind Slack's explosive growth. You'll hear firsthand how they've leveraged freemium and a bottoms up approach to become the fastest growing SaaS company. I'm joined by Fareed Mozavat, lifecycle product manager at Slack. Fareed, thanks for joining us today. Hi, it's great to talk to you, Ashley. Thanks for having me. Really excited to have you on Build. So Slack is definitely a company that needs no introduction, but to kick us off, can you share with our listeners a little bit more about your background? I know you've had the opportunity to work not only in SaaS, but also in the gaming and B2C industry as well. So can you share a bit about your background? Yeah, sure. My path to startups and product management has been pretty circuitous. The only thing that I think is in common between all the different jobs and different roles that I've had is that I love doing new things and I love applying what I've learned to new domains. The one consistent through line in all of it is that I like working on the intersections of technology and the most fundamental human parts of our lives. So I started my career working on entertainment in computer graphics through film at Pixar. I was there for roughly seven years. And then afterwards with games at a startup called Conduit Labs that's based in Boston that was eventually acquired by Zynga. From there, I moved on to health and fitness with Runkeeper, another Boston-based startup where I was the head of product for two years. And then how we feed and eat our families with Instacart here in San Francisco, and now how people communicate with each other and basically help enable how we build all of these experiences at Slack. That's great. So you definitely have had a taste of different industries. So tell us more about your group at Slack. I know your team is called life cycle rather than growth. So tell us what that means. Yeah, this is a very explicit choice for a couple of reasons. Our team's mission is to help every company effectively adopt and scale Slack in their organization. I believe that growth is a side effect of the customer impact we have and not the primary goal. And we wanted to set this team up to really be about that customer experience and building that understanding, building that effectiveness inside your organization and making Slack work inside your company. Growth is a side effect, not our primary thing. It's part of how we measure success. Customers don't care about growth. They care about their own experience. They care about their own success. And so we really wanted to be customer focused in the way that we thought about problems and the way that we thought about what we were working on. Some of the effects of this on the team structure are that we're a full stack product team. We own the underlying systems, not just driving growth or sort of the marketing on top of it. So we own things like billing, user administration, sign up and login as well as the things you traditionally consider part of a growth team, like onboarding, free-to-paid conversion, and those types of things. Secondarily, we also don't own some of the acquisition aspects of growth, like paid marketing, SEO, or content. We work very closely with the marketing teams that work on those things, but our team is focused on the product experience from the second that you hit Slack and start trying to use it once they begin their process of enabling Slack in their organizations. Great. So let's talk about some of the 
reasons behind Slack's success. So it's no secret that freemium has been a huge part of Slack's go-to-market model. So big picture, what are some of the signals whether a business should deploy a freemium strategy or not? Yeah, I've been lucky to work on a bunch of different kinds of freemium businesses, be it in free-to-play games or at Runkeeper with health and fitness where we had a freemium and premium product or at Slack in the B2B space uh, selling to businesses. And I think there are a couple of different characteristics that I've seen in common across these businesses. The first is that successful freemium businesses are naturally viral and collaborative, that using the product naturally draws other people into it. You can't block this kind of growth. So allowing people to use it for free drives that growth and adoption, and it helps them drive that broad appeal. I don't know if you've ever heard of the concept of the penny gap, but getting folks to even pay a single dollar or bring out a credit card is a big area of friction. So if your product relies on collaboration or multiple people or network effects like that, it's pretty important that you reduce the friction as much as possible to get people in there and understanding the basic value proposition. Freemium B2B products usually have broad appeal across an organization and should be able to be adopted bottoms up versus the kinds of products that only one person in the organization deploys or fundamental backend systems. The second is that the product has to have high retention. It needs to be naturally sticky and easy to start using because think about freemium products that have been successful in B2B, for instance, like some of the analytics products like Mixpanel or Slack. These are things that are really easy to set up. So if you are going to build a product to be freemium, it needs to be really easy to get going and get activated. And the other aspect is that the value to the customer should scale non-linearly with usage. So the more you use it, you're generating value faster than the amount of usage that you're giving it. Either because there's network effects that develop through user growth or product value that emerges as a side effect. So think about things like Dropbox and the number of files that you have and the value that that creates as you go across multiple devices or at Slack through the value of your archive and the connectivity between employees. The third thing is that you need to align a value metric or some kind of usage quota or something else that you can build an upgrade path around. In my opinion, freemium models that are built just around premium features are pretty hard to get right because you never know which features are going to have broad appeal. There's often different segments that want different things, and often the willingness to pay for those kinds of features is highly variable. At least in my experience, most of the big freemium successes like Dropbox, Slack, Evernote, and other products like that have some kind of scaling usage or value metric that their freemium models are built around. Let's talk more about that. So you hit on this upgrade path. How does freemium impact the broader packaging and pricing that Slack has gone to market with? Yeah, so freemium is part of that pricing and packaging. At the end of the day, we have a large number of users who use it for a bunch of different reasons, but you have to be focused on a particular part of that market that you want to monetize. And for us, that's businesses. Plenty of people use Slack in a bunch of different ways. They use it for professional groups. They use it for school, they use it for social interaction, to organize weddings, to manage their families, to plan vacations. But our core use case is around businesses. And so our packaging is really designed around helping businesses be really effective. On that note, so how did you think about setting up how to upgrade people from that freemium version into the paid plans? I have only been a Slack for two years, so I can't take any credit for the fundamental pieces of the model like or orientation around the size of the archive. But I do think that our team has had a ton of success making it a lot easier for our customers to understand what our pay plans are, 
why they're valuable to them, and to make sure that we let them know about these things at the right times. So I think if you're going to have a successful freemium product, it's really important to have surface area in your free product that explains the value and the existence of features that are there in your paid plans. We actually found a Slack early on when we first started building out this uh, discipline around free-to-paid conversion that we had tons of customers who didn't even know we offered paid plans. And so awareness is a huge problem area for freemium and something you really have to work on because people have been often using your product for months and months as a free thing. And so they may not even know how you make money. So that's been a big part of our strategy as we drive customers from free to paid. Got it. And to that end, can you share with us, what are some of the tactics that you've leveraged to successfully drive those users from free plans to the paid plans? Sure. So one is making sure you understand who your target customers are, like I described. So which plans are right for which customers? We tend to orient a lot of what our thinking is around these things, around the size of the company or organization that's using them. So first is making sure that you've set up the right tiers or right plans for those customers and that people understand which plan is right for them. The second is making sure that your core value metric, the thing that you're building your freemium strategy around. So for instance, on Slack, that's the size of your archive. So you get 10,000 messages for free. And after that, you have a rolling window of 10,000 messages that you can see. And so when you search, it's important that you understand that there might be messages missing that you're looking for. Or second, why is my history missing? Or third, as you approach that message history, that you're notified that this is something that you may not know about that you need to know about now. So a lot of it is really about building surface area and paid feature awareness inside the product. That's been the majority of our effort around these things, and it's been highly effective. So with having freemium plans and paid plans, that can significantly drive up your total user base. I think I last read that Slack now has 8 million daily active users and 3 million of those are paid users. Right. So given that massive user base that you guys have, which is only growing, how do you balance prioritizing investments for freed users versus paid users? So the best way that we can drive the size of our paid user base is by making sure that our customers understand Slack, can use it inside their organization, and are happy with it in the early days. So we do spend an enormous amount of effort on our early onboarding and getting customers through those first few days of Slack. It's a pretty tough product to get started on. There isn't a great single player mode, for instance. It's not something you can use alone. It's by its nature a collaborative product. And so we spend a lot of effort on those first few days helping customers understand the value of Slack, why it's different than other products they use, and making sure that they are in a place where they feel comfortable inviting their coworkers in, which takes a lot of risk if you think about it from a business perspective. Inviting your coworkers to a new tool is a pretty big hurdle to get over. So when we think about what features go into what plans, we tend to think mostly about how we can stay out of the way of that early adoption. Anything that could be valuable to your basic understanding of Slack, your ability to collaborate, or the usefulness of the core product will almost always fall into the free version of our product. And that's because we don't we want Slack to be super valuable to everybody who tries it on the first day. It's okay if you want to use Slack for free for forever. We think that's still valuable because there are network effects around multiple businesses using it. However, the kinds of things that are valuable only once you've been deeply engaged with Slack or you're choosing to deploy it as an official solution inside your company, those are the kinds of things that we tend to put 
on the other side of our paid plans. So for instance, advanced administrative tools that people in IT might need or connection to single sign-on or Google Auth, interactive screen sharing, group messaging and group calls, those kinds of things, things that you would only start using once you deeply engage Slack inside your organization. We tend to want to be more thoughtful about making those part of our paid offering so that we can increase the value of that paid offering over time. Because we're not just building for new customers who are signing up for Slack today and want to pay, but also to make sure that those who have already chosen to deploy Slack in their organization are already happily paying for it, continue to get more and more value over time and feel like they are getting more for their money. Great point, Fareed. And so you hit on the fact that you guys are heavily focused on onboarding and making sure that your customers are happy and successful very early on. So how does that translate into activation metrics for your team? I'm curious to hear how you define activation metrics and the rationale behind it. Yeah, so I try to keep activation metrics as simple as humanly possible because I think you can get overly complex about these things and overthink them a bit. And really, I like to define activation around what is the moment at which you're going to begin getting initial value in the product and at which we see consistency in the retention and engagement of customers after that point. So not necessarily that every single customer is going to retain forever after they hit activation. I think often that's like, that's a pretty high bar. There are lots of people who turn from products for various reasons, but what's the moment of first value? So for instance, for Instacart, this is placing and receiving your first grocery order. At RunKeeper, it was finishing your first run. So not just starting it, not just clicking the button, but actually feeling the full experience of the product and seeing how that full loop is closed. So for Slack, if you think about it, when do you get core value out of Slack? It's when there are other people there and you're having a public group conversation. So we build our activation around having a certain number, a small number of users, so usually three users, and get in the product, invited and accepted and in the product, they have sent and received a small number of messages each. So around 50 messages is where we see that customers tend to be uh, highly retained. That's the way we think about activation. It's really like getting to a first conversation. That's the moment at which you get Slack, at least in its basics. From there, we have a ton of work to do to show you the full value of Slack throughout the life cycle of the customer. But that's that first moment. That's the beginning at which we know, okay, now we have a shot. Makes total sense. And I'm also curious to hear, is there a time window where you feel like you're really trying to drive customers to that activation point? Yeah, I mean, ideally, for most of these products, it's in the first (laughs) minutes or seconds. (laughs) But I tend to track activation on a first week basis. It depends on the frequency of usage of your product. For Slack, we find that like most successful teams have some activity in the first day, but it does take time. You have other humans involved. You have invites that need to be sent and received over weekends. There are lots of things like that. So we give it a week. We think about that first week as getting our customers to a successful early pilot, a few people talking and sort of playing around with the product. Over the first month, we want you to more deeply understand the core fundamentals of how channels work, how you control who can see what messages, and getting you onto the multiple platforms like across mobile and the desktop app. And then from there, really helping you build value, use Slack effectively, and eventually sign up for a paid plan. Got it. So it's evolving over time, which makes total exactly. sense. We have, you know, really just started the work, but are doing been working really hard to map out that full customer journey. And while no two customers are the same, I think there are a lot of similarities in how complex products like this are deployed. And so we want to map those out, name them, and start to like build product experiences directly around that. 
Mm-hmm, totally. So we've talked a lot about Slack success, and I know I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there are Slack users themselves and have read about Slack and just the revenue and user growth that you guys have had over the years. But I'm sure it hasn't always felt like smooth sailing. So can you talk about some experiences or some times that you've run experiments that have actually gone awry or you have failed? Yeah, I mean, first of all, any high growth startup like this feels like constant chaos at all times. That declines over time, I hope. <laughs> uh, but I don't, I don't know if that's actually true. I don't know if fast growing startups, even after they've reached, you know, Amazon or Facebook scale ever feel like they have it all figured out. So there's tons of failure along the way. But I think specifically on our team, honestly, we've tried to build failure into the fabric and DNA of how we operate. We recently did some analysis looking back at every single experiment we've ever run as a team. And even in the areas where we understand the dynamics really, really well, our hit rate is less than one in three. Fewer than one in three of our experiments And that's hypotheses we've been working on for a while are successful. So we've just embedded that into our process and understanding that the vast majority of things that we do don't work. So we're trying to build learning loops around that. This isn't just about creating success. It's about updating your priors is the way I talk about it. That every experiment you release should help you learn something so that the probability of success the next time goes up. That's obviously asymptotic over time. And this is what we're finding is like, even when we're really good, it's about one in three. But at the beginning, it's most everything that you do doesn't work. And so we have to commit to these areas that we believe in. That's why we do things like map out user journeys, think about customer problems holistically, believe in them, and then invest in them so that over time we can increase our success rate. So I can't really point to any single failure because failure is a huge part of how we operate. One of the things we do to sort of embed this is we review every single experiment as a team, the full team, engineering, QA, design, product, analytics. Everyone gets together once a month and we review everything that we've released over the past month that's been wrapped up and talk about not just what happened, is it success or failure, but what did we learn from that and what are we going to do next? I think a place where growth teams often make mistakes is they treat each experiment in isolation as a yes-no question with a yes-no answer. Did this work or did it not work? But I think it's really important for us to evaluate both the successes and why they worked, as well as our failures and why they didn't, so that we can build that understanding and move on to the next thing with more confidence. Taking every experiment as a stepping stone to launch the next one. Exactly. And I think with business products, the risks, you're dealing with customers who are paying you real money, who are using it to get their jobs done. So they have a low tolerance for problems, mistakes, failures. So I don't believe in fail fast. We want to build good experiences through and through. The experimentation is not a tool for us, our decision-making. It's not a yes, no, should we build this tool? It's a tool for humility. Did what we build have the impact that we expected it to have? And what can we learn from that to build a better experience the next time? In business products, you know, you're dealing with people's work and their core productivity. And so you don't want to get in the way of that. You don't want to just throw things at the wall. So it's really important to understand why things work or don't work and why you're building them in the first place and have high confidence that everything could work or is a good experience, even if it doesn't have the impact that you hoped it would. So looking ahead, how do you envision growth or life cycle teams evolving at tech companies in the future? I think this is a really tough question. I think for a long time, 
growth teams were seen as this separate thing. And they were there to solve a very specific problem, which is distribution is important. And we need to think about it holistically, not just as marketing teams drive leads and then product teams build product, but really as part of a consistent system, especially in business products as people's expectations for how products work and how they work for end users has increased and increased over time. That said, at the same time, growth teams started building this discipline of like really data-driven product management and really data-driven marketing. My expectation is we'll see more teams like our team is, like called Lifecycle or even in core product teams, using data as part of their fundamental core of how they do things. And those kinds of practices will become part of just the way we do marketing and the way we do product. And that I think the need for separate growth teams, so to speak, might diminish over time. Mm -hmm. I think the word growth has come to be used in a lot of different contexts at different companies. In some places, it means sales. In some places, it means marketing. In some, it means product. I think you're seeing it as a buzzword now more than it is about a very specific set of practices. For me, I've spent the last five to six years of my career focused on product-led growth and sort of really thinking about how products can drive adoption and usage. And I think that that's important for every product manager to care about, no matter what the business is. I mean, here at OpenView, we certainly agree. We see the fastest growing companies taking this very different approach to growth and really thinking about product at the forefront of it all. Yeah, I agree. Customers don't make a separation between your org chart and who owns what pieces of the product. At the end of the day, they want to have a great holistic experience from end to end. So while I do think there is some value in having a separate team really thinking about that experience and how distribution drives, I think that we need to be thinking about growth in every part of product management. I certainly agree. Well, Fareed, I just want to say thank you for joining me today and sharing some of your insights, both previously and now at Slack. So really enjoyed you sitting down with us. Thanks. I had a really fun time too. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can subscribe to our newsletter that is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators and founders every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Or you can follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture. Until next time. <laughs>